Open your Bibles or uh, navigate on your device to Matthew chapter 16, please. We're studying through the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 16. We find ourselves at verse 13. We're going to look at verses 13 through 23 this morning. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 23. The topic, Jesus explains to his disciples that believers are the rocks he will be using to build his church between his two comings. The title of our message, He Will, He Will Rock You. So let's have a word of prayer. I thought it was appropriate. And the foxes just uh, texted me and said they're watching from Visalia, so hello, foxes. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for uh, glad hearts, glad in our salvation, grateful for Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, his substitutionary death, Lord, for us, so that we might have eternal life. And I pray that this text, Lord, that was written uh, back in the first century would speak to us in the 21st century. We'd understand why it was written, to who it was written to, how it impacted the original disciples and the uh, people of that time, but how it also is applicable to us, Lord. And we pray that we would do that without uh, doing any violence to the text, but that we would see what your Holy Spirit wants us to see. Thank you that your word is alive, that it's powerful, that is the power of God unto salvation and that it moves us along in our walk with you uh, day by day, Lord, as we become more like Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said amen. Legos harken back all the way to 1934. The name comes from the Danish phrase that I can't really pronounce. I, I don't have a really good Danish accent. In fact, Pam said I only have one accent, no matter what ethnicity I'm trying to do. So, but it's something like legat, which means play well. They were originally made of wood. The manufacturer began producing plastic toys in 1947. In 1949, an early version of the now famous interlocking bricks were called automatic binding bricks. There's a, there's a selling feature there. In 1958, the modern brick design was developed, and it took another five years to find the right material for it. It's an ABS polymer. Uh, those of you who studied that kind of stuff know what that means. It's probably destroying the environment, but we don't care. Uh, most of you have probably seen the recent Lego movie, or you're familiar with it. What you might not know is that movies starring Legos as characters have been made by amateurs for many years. They are called brick films, and they're created using stop-motion camera techniques. Uh, we have a brick film on our website depicting the rapture of the church occurring as we were celebrating our 20th anniversary here uh, a few years ago. How many of you have ever seen our brick film? It's, it's a hoot. Uh, and you should go to our website and check it out. Now, in our text, Jesus describes his followers as blocks, if you will, with which he is building. We're not animated Legos, but we are living stones being fitted together as the building of God on earth, the dwelling place of God by his Holy Spirit. Right after describing his followers as living stones, one of them, Peter, acts as a stumbling stone, drawing a stern rebuke from the Lord. And therein lies a lesson for us. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you're called out to be a living stone Number two, you're challenged to not be a stumbling stone. Let's take a look, first of all, at uh, the living stones. Now, 
We're catching up with Jesus at an incredible turning point in his earthly ministry. He's been telling his disciples that he will be rejected by Israel's leaders. And as a result, he will not at this time establish the kingdom on the earth that God promised his chosen people. He will establish it in the future when he returns in his second coming. Between those two comings, he sends his disciples out into the whole world to preach the gospel. For the first time, Jesus reveals that those who receive him through the gospel are his church. Very first time that he uses this term to describe us. And so verse 13 says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Jesus is someone who must be reckoned with. Every person needs to answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? There's a short video clip circulating on the internet in which Bono from U2 is asked about Jesus. He openly confesses that Jesus is God, uh, going so far as to say that if he is not God, then he must be considered nuts on account of his claims. You can tell it catches the interviewer off guard. Uh, but Jesus just cannot be ignored. And so verse 14, they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah are one of the prophets. It's a strange list, but it's no stranger than the answers people give today. Probably the most common answers are that Jesus was a great moral teacher or another of the prophets. A recent billboard in Columbus, Ohio drew the ire of many people because it simply said, Jesus is Muslim. Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus is Michael the Archangel. I like the way Josh McDowell puts it. It's a kind of a stronger statement than Bono made. Jesus was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was the Lord. Uh, you don't have any wiggle room, we might say, looking at the claims of Christ. Well, he was a great moral teacher. Well, if he was, he was a lunatic because he also claimed to be equal with God. And so how much great moral teaching can you get from a lunatic who says that he is God? He either was God in human flesh or he was not. You don't have the option of choosing one over the other or choosing the other way. You have to choose the one that's correct, right? I like the way Josh McDowell puts it and that's the way we need to think about it. Now, verse 15, he said to them, who do you say that I am? Jesus had just identified himself for them as the son of man. The phrase comes from the book of Daniel. I'll read it to you. It's Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Daniel identified the son of man as their Messiah who would come and establish an everlasting dominion, the kingdom which shall not be destroyed. The son of man, however, was more than a man, hence Jesus' question. He says, who do you say that the son of man, the Messiah, really is? And Simon Peter answered and said in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, son of man and the Christ seem somewhat equivalent to me. They're two ways of saying the same thing. The son of man Daniel saw coming is the Christ, meaning the anointed one, meaning the Messiah. 
in whom and through whom all God's promises to Israel and the world would be fulfilled. Son of the living God seems an acknowledgement of deity, does it not? The Son of Man, the Christ, is also the only begotten Son of the Father. He is very God of very God. He is God in human flesh. And so Peter makes this tremendous confession of faith in the uh, person and work of Jesus that he is the God-man. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, uh, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter did not, nor could he have come to this conclusion without the grace of God operating on his heart. I mean, he could have known this intellectually or assented to it intellectually, but this uh, declaration from his heart requires revelation. We contribute nothing to our salvation. It is all a work of grace. It is by grace through faith we believe and are saved, and faith is not a work. Grace operates on the human heart in a way theologians call prevenient. It means it comes before working on the heart, freeing your will to exercise faith. Thus, the offer of salvation that God makes is a genuine offer to whosoever will believe. Now, if the Son of Man, the Christ, the Son of the living God, was not going to at that time establish the kingdom... If he was returning to heaven, what was he going to do? We keep talking in this section, uh, chapters 14 and 15 and 16, about uh, the disciples going out and preaching the gospel. What is the result of that going to be? And so he says in verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, the main thing Jesus will be doing and is doing, because we still live in this time period, is building his church. The word itself was a common word. It was used of communities or assemblies of people. It literally means a called out people as in a special group called out from among a larger population. The word was never used to refer to a building or an institution. It is only always used of people who comprise that group. Now, Jesus is building on the earth between his comings a spiritual community. It is comprised of all those who respond by faith uh, to the grace of God. It is not an institution, but it does have structure. Now, I want to mention this today because many people are criticizing the church and seeking to redefine it according to their own ideas. This is always true in every generation of Christians, but it seems more uh, prevalent today uh, because of the internet. Everybody is a blogger. Everybody seems famous right now. I mean, if you can get online, uh, you can create a blog, and, and you, you, you can appear to be famous or, uh, you know, that you know something because you have an Internet presence. And, of course, you know, if it's on the Internet, it must be true, right? I have people, there are a couple of uh, satirical websites. I think The Onion is one of them, and people sometimes read a story on The Onion uh, some outrageous story, and then they say, look what happened. In fact, the latest one, I hope you didn't do this, but a good friend of mine, a pastor, he 
republished this story about how Pope Francis had uh, contacted, uh, the, uh, what's her name, Rowlings, what's her first name, the Harry Potter lady? J.J. Rowlings, to rewrite the Bible so th- for a younger generation. And that spread like wildfire. Christians were up in arms, you know, about that. And I said, yeah, it was a complete farce. And stuff. So the internet makes everybody a genius. And, and if you follow anybody at all, you'll get all of these weird blogs about the church and how the church is failing and, and people are trying to redefine it. People are saying the church should never meet except in homes, for example. Uh, that that's the only place a church should ever meet or that there should not ever be large churches or that there's no need for any formal leadership. You just hang out as a Christian, usually at Starbucks, it seems, uh, and you have your computer open with the name Jesus on it, I guess, and then people uh, come to you, you get, you know, you share the gospel with them, and then they go out and reproduce, but there's not much more to it. Now, there's one, one suggestion I almost bought into, it was kind of interesting, one guy was saying that uh, as far as your tithe or your offering, you just tithe to yourself. Uh, essentially, and, and buy, you know, if you want to go to a conference or buy material for yourself or buy your friends a Bible or something, that's your tithe. And I thought, well, okay, how can I incorporate this? But, but so anyway, there's all these wild theories about what the church should be and how it's failing. The church is explained for us in the New Testament letters. If you look for the church in the New Testament, you'll see it was a called out group of believers who met locally at least once a week, usually on Sunday. Among its gifted members, there were leaders, pastors and elders and deacons. Believers gave to the work of the church joyfully, regularly, and sacrificially. Yes, they met in homes in the first century, but mostly on account of the culture, but they also, in the first century, met in rented buildings when they could. And so, um, when you encounter these kind of criticisms, you know, people say things like, well, show me in the Bible where this is what the church, I can show you in five minutes. It's like name that tune, you know? I don't even need that long to show you that what we're doing today is very similar to what they did in the first century and to what God says ought to be done in the church. And so be a little bit aware of these kinds of things. Uh, You know, people just want to be independent. They want to shake you up and make you think you're doing something wrong. And they just haven't thought it through. And these same people... Uh, 10 years from now are going to say, yeah, I, I got involved in that and it was garbage, but now I have the real truth. And just find people who are stable and hang out with them, all right? There's a lot of instability we don't need to uh, add to it. And so uh, take all this back to the first century, see what we're doing is what the first church did. Now, one of the most important things Jesus felt he needed to tell us about his church was that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, Hades is the temporary abode of the souls of the dead. Before Jesus died and rose from the dead, the souls of every person who died went to Hades. According to Jesus, as he portrays it in Luke chapter 16, there are two compartments in Hades, two addresses. One is a place of torment where the souls of non-believers go. The other is a place of comfort. It's called Abraham's bosom where the souls of believers go. Or I should say where the souls of believers went because it seems that after Jesus rose from the dead, he took with him to heaven all the souls that were in Abraham's bosom. Today, if a believer dies, he or she does not go to Hades But the Bible says you are absent from your body and present with the Lord in heaven. 
Non-believer souls are still sent to Hades to await the final judgment after which they will in resurrection bodies be cast alive into the lake of fire. Now the gates of Hades shall not prevail means several important things. It means that the building of his church will continue without fail despite opposition until he returns for it. It means that even though members of his church die, death cannot hold them. In light of Jesus' impending announcement of his own death, it means that his death is not the end of his church, but rather it was the beginning in a sense. He had to die and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven to send the Holy Spirit, which was the birth of the church. And so when Jesus says the gates of Hades, it's a euphemism for death. He goes, death isn't going to be a problem for what I'm telling you. I'm going to die, but it's not going to kill the church. You might die, but it's not going to kill the church. The church will survive all opposition against it and efforts to kill Christians uh, until the end of the age. Surrounding his announcement of the church and its triumph over death are a few phrases that have caused confusion and controversy. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. This phrase gets attributed to Roman Catholics as their basis for declaring Peter their first pope. Protestants stumble all over themselves to prove why it doesn't mean that using several elaborate arguments. Sometimes we forget that the Bible is a progressive revelation of God and that it interprets itself. This wasn't the last time this language was ever used to describe the building of the church. In fact, Peter himself used it in his letters, which gives us his interpretation of what Jesus meant. First of all, let's look at the words themselves because they are significant. Jesus says, you are Peter. The word is Petros, meaning rock. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Petros is a masculine singular, uh, singular noun. Petra is feminine. And while related, they represent a distinction. Now, I'm not a language scholar, but this is easy for us to understand. It, it, it's not very deep into languages. The masculine singular form re refers to Peter as a singular rock or stone. You're just saying, Peter, you're a rock. Uh, you're one rock. The feminine form may be understood to represent bedrock or a rock quarry. And so all Jesus is saying is you're a rock among a lot of rocks. You can see that out in our little area here, you know. One rock, when your kid goes out there and picks up that, you say, hey, that's a lesson today. That's one rock among many rocks. I'm sure this is what Jesus meant because Peter would say later the same thing himself using the word stone and stones to get his thought across. Instead of rocks, he uses the word stones. But in 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5, he says, coming to Jesus as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so Peter said, there's just one living stone, it's Jesus Christ. The rest of us are living stones that Jesus is building his church with. He is the living stone, or we would say the foundation upon which living stones are set. Peter included himself as one of the stones, no more, no less. In other passages, Peter described himself as an apostle. He described himself as an elder and he described himself as a servant, no more and no less. And so the, just the normal everyday reading of the New Testament would come to the conclusion that Peter was uh, 
unequal with you and I uh, and the other disciples. He had some unique ministry, but so do all of us. Uh, he was a living stone, part of the quarry that the Lord is building from. The Apostle Paul would state this same truth in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, saying that the church Jesus is building is God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole stone building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul, in that passage, called Jesus the chief cornerstone. Later in 1 Corinthians, he calls him the foundation. Peter was blessed. He was certainly a leader among the 12, but he was no more than you or I, a living stone in the building Jesus is constructing upon himself as its foundation, and he said so himself. You don't have to stay in Matthew 16 and come up with any elaborate argument about what Jesus meant because Peter says, hey, come over here where I wrote some letters and I'll tell you what Jesus meant. He meant that he's the foundation and he's building with us. Now, what about the keys of the kingdom and the binding and loosing mentioned in verse 19? Later in Matthew, in chapter 18, verse 18, Jesus will say this to all his disciples and by extension to all future believers. And so it wasn't something just for Peter. He didn't give Peter the keys to the Vatican or anything like that. I mean, he's talking about something that all believers uh, exist in. Keys and binding and loosing are the symbols and the duties, respectively, of stewards. We are stewards of the gospel. When we share it, it is the key that unlocks the entrance into the kingdom of God for those who respond to the grace of God by faith. Binding means prohibiting, loosing means permitting. The idea is that we have been delegated authority by God to act on his behalf on the earth, obviously within the boundaries of his will revealed in his word. So whatever God has already revealed in his word, we implement on the earth, we preach and we put into practice. You'll notice the verse reads, whatever you bind or loose, not whoever. It has to do with our handling of the word of God as stewards. Wilmington said of this, the actions of a spirit-led believer carry heaven's authority. You've been called out to be a living stone in the Lord's spiritual community that he's building. You are a living stone with heaven's delegated authority. Think of that for a moment. You can declare to a person that if they repent and believe Jesus in response to the grace of God, their sins are forgiven and they have eternal life. You and I, I know we don't take it for granted. I mean, we're excited about that. But do you think of how tremendous that is? You, you're telling a person with absolute confidence that if they receive Christ as their savior, they will die and be absent from their body and present with the Lord. They will live forever. And you're not thinking, gosh, I hope that's true. I just read that in my religious class, in my comparative religion class, and it sounds feasible. No, you, you have an absolute confidence that it is true. And that is a delegated authority like crazy. I mean, it's amazing. That's the delegated authority given to you as stewards of the gospel. Now, in the remaining verses, you're challenged to not be a stumbling stone. This is the first time Jesus speaks openly and plainly about his impending death and resurrection. There have been hints. For example, in John chapter 2, Jesus had predicted that if the Jews destroyed the temple, he would raise it up again in three days. They didn't realize he was speaking of himself as the temple and of his own death and resurrection. 
To Nicodemus, who came with his questions in John chapter 3, Jesus said that he had to be lifted up, even as the serpent in the wilderness, in order to save those who believed in him, indicating that he would have to die on the cross. In his interchange with the Pharisees back in Matthew 12, he indicated he would spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the same thought had been repeated in Matthew 16, verse 4. Now, however, the time had come to speak plainly about his death. Verse 20, he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. As we'll see in a moment, though Jesus spoke plainly, even the 12 did not understand that he was going to the cross. Certainly no one else would. Any announcement that Jesus was the Son of Man, the Christ, would cause the people to think their kingdom was about to be established when, in fact, their kingdom was being postponed while the church was being built. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. The elders, the chief priests and scribes is a shorthand for the Sanhedrin or Sanhedrin, the rulers of the Jews. Jesus would be officially rejected by the ruling body uh, representing all of Israel. His prophetic statement raised the third day seemed to get lost in suffer many things and be killed. That's all the disciples heard. And so in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Why do we want to fault Peter when we probably would have done the same thing? We have a tendency, do we not, to want to soften the blow of bad news. We do it all the time. Even when people are dying, we often want to give them false hope. I, I kind of first encountered this a long time ago when I was just first in the ministry, wet behind the ears. This gal called me on the phone. She said her father was in uh, the emergency room. By the time I got there, they'd moved him to ICU. He, was, he, was, uh, he had a mass, I think it, was, it had something to do with his heart. I can't remember what it was, but she said he's going to die. They, you know, it's, it's a miracle that he's even alive. Can you come and share the gospel with him? And so I went down there and I found him and, you know, I, the doctor said, yeah, he's terminal, he's not going to make it, you know. And so I went and, I, and um, I, I started, I said, you don't know me, but, you know, your daughter had me to come down because you're going to die. He goes, what? And I looked at her and I said, does he know that he's going to die? And she goes, no, I, I couldn't tell him. So well, I guess it's up to me to tell him. I said, sir, you're going to die. <laughs> so, you know, it was not a pleasant thing, but uh, it kind of makes your point. And uh, so we prayed and, uh, you know, but people do that. I, I remember back in the way back time, you know, when I was a little kid and we'd tell stories of the old country and stuff. My mom and dad told me that my grandpa, who I never had the privilege of meeting, died of cancer, but they never told him he was dying of cancer. They didn't want him to worry about it. And so, and that's kind of an old way of doing things like, yep. You know, I don't, how everybody else knows you have cancer, but you don't, I don't know. Maybe the doctor just used to tell the wife, he's got cancer and he's going to die, but don't tell him, you know, and stuff. Uh, give me your chicken uh, now for payment. I don't know. It goes away. But we do that all. We don't like, you know, our immediate response is, no, that's not going to happen. God wouldn't let that happen. Yeah, people die. And so now I'm not, uh, you know, there's optimism, there's pessimism. I'm talking about realism. I don't think you have to be an optimist or a pessimist. You just have to be a realist. And so let's be real with one another and with others about what's really going on and the potential for it. 
Now, Peter was trying to encourage the Lord, but think how terribly discouraging this must have been. Have you ever thought that in trying to encourage somebody, you actually are discouraging them? It's something to think about. Jesus needed support to go to the cross, not temptation to avoid it. Jesus had just said, I'm gonna, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer and die and rise from the dead and, uh, you know, all of this. And, and, and he needed his disciples to say, Lord, we're going to stand with you to the end through all of that. You can count on us, to, if, you know, to pray with you and to be there at the cross. Uh, and and we're, we're on board. Instead, it's like, oh, yeah, that's not going to happen. Forget about it. It's not going to happen. I wonder if the Lord's eyes welled with tears as he looked upon a guy who had just uttered this tremendous statement of faith. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Strong words to be sure, but Peter needed to hear them for his own spiritual good and growth. Through his own sorrow, Jesus was ministering to Peter. Jesus had a sense, and this comes up several times in the Gospels, Jesus had a sense that Satan had painted a bullseye on Peter for whatever reason. He was always trying to sift him like wheat and get him to stumble. And so he needed to be ministered to in a very direct way. And that's what the Lord was doing. Through his own sorrow, he was ministering to Peter. What a friend we have in Jesus. No matter what we say or do to him, he looks through it, sometimes with tears, because of how we've broken his heart but he ministers to us. Peter wasn't demon-possessed. He wasn't even demon-oppressed. He was simply but sadly saying exactly what Satan had said in the wilderness temptation of Christ to the effect of, you need to avoid the cross at all costs. Anytime we are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men, we too are playing into Satan's strategies. We are speaking for Satan. It's as if, if Satan were here, this is what he would say. In this case, the things of men would say, don't suffer, don't die. But without that death, we could not be saved. Today, the things of men opposed to the things of God are all around us. A big one today I'm finding is happiness versus holiness. God wants us to be holy, and that means living within the loving boundaries he has established for us in his word. There's no getting around it. God has established boundaries for his children in his word the same way that you and I establish boundaries for our children in this world. You don't just let your children do everything they want to to do, expose them to everything that there is out there. I mean, you know, gosh, you're concerned about that, and our Heavenly Father is concerned about us. Uh, Some of the boundaries, things like abstaining from premarital sex, from adultery, from homosexuality, and other sexual sins, that's... That's, those are pretty clear ones. It's bad enough that non-believers are involved in those things, but even believers balk at holiness now. And when you talk to them, they either actually say this or they mean this, God wants me to be happy. Well, what about these boundaries? Yeah, I see them. They don't apply to me in this situation because I feel happy. And holiness is out the window. There are no boundaries. It's whatever you want to do. I think Jesus still looks at people and would say to them, get behind me, Satan. And so if you're in the unenviable position of of knowing someone or being someone who says, well, 
I see what holiness is, but I choose happiness. Then I want you to hear these words, get behind me, Satan, because these are the things of the world uh, and not the things of God. Offense here is stumbling block. So Peter the stone became Peter the stumbling block. And that's an important point of application for us. None of us living stones want to be stumbling blocks to the work of the Lord. But if we're not mindful of the things of God, hey, that's exactly what we become, both to other believers and to non-believers. We are building blocks, living stones, whom Jesus, the living stone, has placed in his building. But once in place, it's interesting, we also become builders. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 9 through 11, we are God's fellow workers, that's one analogy. You are God's field, that's another one. And then Paul says, you are God's building, okay, according to the grace of God, which is given to me, a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. So Paul, Paul is crazy for mixing metaphors. He probably would have got a D in Greek class. His teacher would have said, too many mixed metaphors, but so he says, you're the field, you're a worker, you're a building, and you're the builder. And you think, well, how can I be the building and the builder? But it's, it's looking at the same thing two different ways. We talk in our society about building things, important things. We build families. We build wealth. We build careers. Well, we're also, and maybe even primarily, to be building within the church, we are the living stones that comprise the church, but we're also builders in that structure adding to it as we are disciples sharing the gospel. And so each of us on our own should take heed how we build in terms of how much of our time, how much of our talent, and how much of our treasures we are using to build this amazing organic structure that Jesus is going to take home with him when he returns. Let's pray.